you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it now. If you don't have one, I'd suggest you take a Bible that's in the seats around you and turn it to page 812 in those black Bibles. As a church, we preach through sections of the Bible consecutively until we get to the end of a section or a book and then move on to another part. Today we end a long teaching section that's all from Jesus' own mouth. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at the last little, bar, little part of his conclusion in the Sermon on the Mount. Before I read that passage to you and read at the end after Jesus is done talking, you're going to see the response to this sermon. You're going to see what the people did or how they responded to hearing Jesus' message. And so as I read how Jesus concludes and how the people respond, I want to give you three three comments that sociologists have made in recent years about the world that we live in as we hear what is now the last part of Jesus' sermon. And for many of you who have been coming week in and week out, you've now heard the whole Sermon on the Mount through the weekly teaching of this church. And I wonder if the way that we live in today's day and age puts us at a severe disadvantage compared to the people of Jesus' day. Here's three comments. From sociologists. Comment number one, we have more information now than we've ever had ever before. Comment two, we feel overwhelmed by the explosion of the information age. Comment three, we're used to hearing loads of information, sometimes even being moved by it, and doing nothing about it in response. A word on each. First, from Buckminster Fuller, he has showed that through the last 2,000 years, if you start at the time of Jesus, it took 1,500 years for the cumulative knowledge in all of human civilization to double. So take Jesus' day and then the time of the Reformation, 1,500 years for information to double. After that, it took 200 years After that, 100 years until World War II. Then after that, every 25 years, information on the entire earth would double every 25 years until the 1990s, when it was every 12 months. And now the latest Google analyst says it's every 12 hours. Imagine for a moment that if you were born in the days of Jesus, it would have taken a millennia and a half for the information that was available to the human civilization to double. Anyone born today, it has already doubled twice before you turn two days old. That's point number one that sociologists have observed. Point number two, that's a lot of information, and so we feel overwhelmed by the explosion of information in our age. This comes from Thomas Friedman. He points out that technology is increasing faster than we can possibly handle, that we all feel behind the curve running to play catch-up and stressing out and overtired because of the pace of this change. Does that feel true to any of you today? In general, do you feel like we are running around and frantic and you can never keep up with the latest diet fads? I was having a conversation with people in my house just this week had them over for some dessert. And we were talking about gluten and dairy and all kinds of things, and that's just what people are talking about today. And then someone made the comment and said, yeah, but in 10 years, they'll say everything that we were doing was wrong. That's just one area of information. And don't you see this happening all the time all around you? We have more information than we've ever had. We feel overwhelmed by this explosion of information. Third point, this comes from Neil Postman read his book earlier this week called Amusing Ourselves to Death. In that book, he has a chapter and a point in there where he says that the information to action ratio is very skewed in today's day and age. To quote him, he says, the tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought and sold or used as a form of entertainment or worn like a garment to enhance someone's status. It comes indiscriminately, directed at no one in particular, and disconnected from usefulness. We are glutted, like gluttony, 
We have a glutton of information. We are drowning in information. We have no control over it, and we do not know what to do with it. Now, for those of you that aren't aware, Neil Postman wrote this book in the 1980s, 30 years ago. Could you imagine what he would write today? He makes his point in this chapter that I just quoted from, not by pointing to the coming computer or the internet that didn't exist yet or Wi-Fi or smartphones, but rather the turning point of technology being the telegraph. Neil Postman said it was that time that information started to move at lightning speed and information and news became disconnected from where you lived in the time and place that you lived in it. Before that, if you heard something, it was because of local news, word of mouth. Joe's barn got caught on fire. Oh no, let's do something to help him out. Joe's barn in California got caught on fire and you live in Chicago. Who's Joe? I don't know. Interesting. Oh, well, move on with my day. Before local news led to doing something, information to action ratio. Today, the onslaught of news leads to a severed relationship between hearing and learning and doing. So one more time, the three comments. We have more information now than we've ever had before. We feel overwhelmed by the explosion of information in this information age, rightly so-called. And thirdly, we're used to this. This is the norm of our everyday lives. Most of us have only been born in an age like this. Therefore, we're accustomed to hearing and then sometimes even being moved by the things and the news and the information we hear. But honestly, we're doing nothing about it. Neil Postman rightly points out, there's so many things that we hear that we just can't do anything about. In light of that, let's hear how Jesus concludes his sermon. Chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. To hopefully not overload you with too much information, our outline this morning will be very simple. I want to teach you two words that are in this text that I just read you. And for us to meditate and think about them and hopefully apply them, the first word is poieo. Can you all say that? Poieo. Good job for those of you that tried. Poieo. That word you read several times in this text, and it has a concentrated usage in this last conclusion section of Jesus' teaching. So, for example, turn back in your Bibles to chapter 3, and I want to show you one of the instances of Poieo in chapter 3, verse 8. Poieo fruit in keeping with repentance, John the Baptist preached. Produce, make, bear good fruit as you repent. Chapter 3, verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not poieo good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 19. Your eyes at least. It says, Jesus told these two fishermen, follow me and I will poieo you as fishers of men. I will make you, I will produce, I will turn you into fishers 
of men. Then in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 19, if you turn over, in the thesis section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what's the whole point of this long sermon we've been going through? It's about the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And look at chapter 5, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever poieo them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then throughout Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, or Jesus' words here, you'll see several different instances of him using this word again. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. Oh, we just saw that. Look at chapter 5, verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you poieo than others? Poieo, even the Gentiles do that. Don't even the Gentiles poieo the same thing? Here in this section, he's talking about the contrast between, hey, we should love our enemies. And everybody loves their friends and families, but do you love your enemies? And he drives it home using this phrase. Or in chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of poieo, your righteousness, so that you will be seen by other people. Practicing, it's translated here. And then it's the same word used for giving in the next few verses, chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Thus, when you give, or poieo, needy people. So it's giving, bearing, doing to the needy is the language there. And then finally, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 7, in his summing up the entire Sermon on the Mount, what does righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees look like? Chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would poieo to you, poieo also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish others to do to you, do also to them. For this sums up the whole Old Testament, sums up the whole demand that God has for you for how you should live. This is my message that I'm giving to you. So then, therefore, sum it all up in a short sentence. It's poieo. Do something to other people what they would have you, what you would have them do to you. And then you get to the conclusion. And this word appears ten times in a matter of a short number of verses. Chapter 7, verse 17. You see it twice in this text when you see he's talking about bearing good fruit in verse 17. A good tree, a healthy tree, will poieo, it will bear good fruit. A diseased tree will make, it will produce bad fruit. Chapter 7, verse 18. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Same word again. Diseased tree bear good fruit. Verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is thrown into the fire. Chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does, poieo, the will of my Father who is in heaven. Chapter 7, verse 22, and on that day many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, poieo, works in your name. And lastly, our text that I just read today, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, practices them, bears good fruit with the words of Jesus, you are a wise man and you're building your house on a rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not poieo, does not do them, does not make them a practice and a pattern and the norm for how they live, they will be a foolish man who builds their house on the sand. In other words, last week's section that I taught was about false prophets. And they're speaking the words of God but they're not doing God's words. Speaking without doing is a false prophet. Their lives, their fruit show that they are not truly a man or woman of God. This week's section, the contrast is not between two trees, but two houses. And on the outside, the houses look the same, but underneath the foundation is so different. Have you ever been to Chicago downtown or a big city when they're about to build a tall building? When I lived in Washington, D.C., I biked everywhere as my main mode of transportation. I wish that I could do that here, 
The weather is terrible during the winters, which prohibits it. And everything's just kind of more spaced out. I would get to places quicker on my bicycle than I would in my car. That's how bad DC traffic is, by the way. It's like number one in the nation for terrible traffic. My point being, though, I would, I would bicycle a lot, and I would sometimes look over and have great views on the sidewalks of these construction sites. And when you look down, the foundation for a big building being built, even in Washington, D.C., which has, it pales in comparison. No building can be taller than the Washington Monument or the Washington Capitol in D.C., so the buildings compared to Chicago's downtown are just puny, you know. They're cooler and older in Washington, D.C., but they're not nearly as big as Chicago buildings. And if you're going to build a tall building, even one in Washington, D.C., you have to build a deep, deep foundation. Dig far down. Same thing with a good house. You could have a house on the outside as you're trying to purchase a home. And it could look really great, and the cosmetics could be looking good. You might like the interior, but if the foundation is cracked... You're going to be told that's, that's a house to pass on. Don't, don't buy that house. You should get inspections, by the way. A little fun tip for you all. A lot of young people in here, you might be purchasing homes. Get an inspection. Have somebody check your foundation. See if there's cracks. Don't buy houses that are all cracked up. That's what Jesus is talking about. In his day, it would have looked a lot different because they had constant rainstorms during rainy seasons. And what they'd have are called wadis, spots where there would be a river, but then during the dry season it'd dry up. And so what the picture here is is somebody who looks at what looks like a nice dry spot, but eventually is going to turn into a river. And then when the rains come and the rainy season comes, the whole house is just going to be washed out. And so be a wise man who builds his house on a sure foundation deep down into the ground or on a solid rock. If you don't, you're a foolish man. You're a moro. So where we get the word moron. Ezekiel chapter 33 is what I think is a good context or background for this text. Likely Ezekiel's message that you heard earlier in the scripture reading and then in this one. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, come, hear the word that comes from the Lord. And then they come to you, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear, and they listen to what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, but their hearts are set on gain. And behold, you are to them like the one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice, and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they do not do it. This is a theme throughout the Old and New Testament, that a prophet comes and he speaks but the people do not respond with repentance to turn and actually act and take to heart what's been said. Jesus' half-brother, James, he has written a letter later on in the New Testament, and it seems as if James is constantly giving commentary on the Sermon on the Mount in particular and Jesus in general. Read through James this afternoon. It's five short chapters, and if you've just had the Sermon on the Mount fresh, freshly taught You'll see again and again how James is applying Jesus' teaching. Here's one of the examples. Be doers of the word, not a hearer only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It's James chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. The mission of our church is to make disciples throughout all the nations of the world. This will glorify God as we make disciples of all the nations. A disciple is somebody who does not merely hear God's word at church on Sunday. A disciple is not somebody who is just listening to sermons, even if they listen to them every day on podcasts or read Christian books. A disciple of Jesus is somebody who is with Jesus through their communion with him, sometimes as they hear God's word taught and, and we spend time with Jesus, but then is like Jesus, lives like him and follows him. 
And so as a church, even more recently, I've used that little phrase, be with Jesus and be like Jesus. I have a slide for it, Nate. Be with Jesus and be like Jesus. Two simple ways to boil it down. What do we mean make disciples of all the nations? This is what we're making. This is what we're poieo. This is what we're doing and trying to produce and bear fruit. People who want to spend time with Jesus and to be like him and practice the ways of Jesus. I don't know if you remember this, but I taught this as well previously that the word disciple, one of its best translations, I think, in today's modern English, is apprentice. And if you think about what an apprentice does, they first watch their teacher. They help them with side things that they can do as they start learning. The apprentice then turns over and says, all right, it's your job. The teacher tells the apprentice, it's your job, and now I'm now going to supervise and watch you. And then finally they graduate, and they become the new teacher that then teaches other apprentices. Think about those four steps. Watch, help, you then take the responsibility and he help you, and then you help others. That's in essence, when you're reading through Matthew's gospel, you see Jesus call and say, follow me. I want you to watch. I want you to listen. I want you to spend time with me. Then there's going to be a transition in Matthew's gospel where he sends them out, and he's going to say, okay, now I want you to help. And then eventually, he's going to send them out, and they're going to make disciples. They're going to be like Jesus. Could you imagine me saying, hey, I want to be an electrician. I want to be a plumber. I want to be a doctor or a nurse. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to sit under somebody during residency. And then I don't actually practice whatever I was doing. I just sit and watch and learn, and I memorize the plumbing handbook on how to do plumbing in the house, but I never actually help anybody's plumbing problems. I never actually go and work in a hospital or a doctor's office. I just know all kinds of information, and I can watch Grey's Anatomy all day long on Netflix, and I'll know what they're talking about, but I'm not actually practicing medicine. How many of us is this what our experience or observation of Christianity has been. Foolish people who hear Jesus' teaching. We've memorized Bible verses. We know some of them in the Greek language. All of you just learned poieo today. Good for you. But the whole point of learning that word was to say, are you going to do something about what Jesus has taught you? And there's four steps that we have as a church for how we think that this looks evangelize the lost, establish the new believer, equip the saint to do the work of the ministry, and export them. We've been teaching this from the first day that our church has existed. Our mission is to make disciples, to be doing something in the world. How do, how do you make a disciple? You first share the good news of the message and the life-transforming power of who Jesus is and the grand story of the Bible. And you evangelize by sharing good news. That's what that word means, to share good news. And do that with people that are lost and confused and don't know that good news. You don't do it condescendingly. You don't act like you have something better than, that they don't, like, oh, I'm so special. You do it with a heart of love that says, I think this message needs to go to the whole world. It's good for everyone. And therefore, you encourage all your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, get a hold of Jesus. As people respond with repentance and faith and say, who is this Jesus guy? I want to I be more like him. I want to be with him and be like him. You then help establish them with basic things like learn how to read their Bible and pray how to talk to God and be in community with other people. The importance of disciplines and practices. Then you equip them with their spiritual gifts, knowing that everybody's got certain ways that God made them in their day and their time, their unique attributes and qualities, and equip them with the work of the ministry, and then eventually export them out. Another way I've diagrammed this is with the discipleship diamond. The top and bottom parts show God's part. Through the Holy Spirit, he is transforming our hearts with his love. And so many people want to say that's discipleship. But that, that is. That's an important part of discipleship. But that's not the whole thing. This picture is to represent the whole picture and vision of discipleship, of doing and practicing the way and life of Jesus. 
So yes, God's Spirit being with Jesus in a daily routine and rhythm takes practice. That takes effort, takes spiritual formation. On the other side, it takes others to help you and a church family and a community that will help keep you accountable at times, to encourage you when you're struggling, to pray for you. And then on the bottom part, it's our experiences as God's teaching us through the daily life and rhythms of our life. We're going to have experiences that you just can't learn through books and Bible studies and classes. I've been doing a lot of pre-marriage counseling this summer, and several times I've had to look at the people that I've been counseling and say, hey guys, I just want you to know, here's some things we're going to teach you, but one of the things you need to realize is the commitment of covenant love together in marriage will teach you to grow together, and that in 10 years from now, you're going to have experience of knowing one another better, so you'll be able to talk and listen and care for each other way better than you can now. And one of the big reasons why sometimes early marriages or early years in the marriage can be tough is because you just don't have experience. Experience with one another or experience in being married. So yes, people who are married 10, 20, 30 years, there should be a growth as God would bless it in that way. And it's the same thing in our relationship with Jesus. So as a very practical application for all of you, do you know the difference between trying hard versus training hard? Too many people when they hear sermons like this or just Bible teaching in general, they're like, yeah, I want to do that. I'm going to try really hard to do what I just heard. And Jesus says in the conclusion of his sermon, all of you who hear these words of mine, which words? The Sermon on the Mount. All the words prior to our final little section. So I want you to imagine for a second, you've heard the whole sermon just now. Like I read to you from chapter 5 through chapter 6, chapter 7, at the very end, Jesus concludes. Now, if you've heard all of these words of mine, I want you to do them. I want you to practice them. Now, for those of you that know what the Sermon on the Mount contains, how many of you are going to just try real hard and get all of them tomorrow morning? Do you remember what he talked about? Let's remember. The first thing he says after his thesis statement is, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, reconcile quickly with your friends and your family members and don't even have hatred in your heart. Don't even call people names. Any of you ever struggle with anger problems? I'm not looking for hands or confessions. That's okay. Just, just thinking. Do you ever struggle with anger, anger problems? Try hard tomorrow and they'll be gone. Jesus keeps going. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Men or women, has lust ever been a struggle in your heart? To look with a covetous desire at another person, objectify them, treat them as like they were made for your pleasure, and get in bad habits of looking at pornography, etc., etc. Are there, are there things like this that even in this room, yeah, if we were to raise hands, I might say, I've struggled with that. So would it be helpful for me to say, okay, go, go do it, try hard tomorrow. It, it'll be done, fixed. All you need is God's spirit, boom, that's how he does it. You just keep working through the Sermon on the Mount, and this is how things go. Don't worry. Look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. God takes care of them. Are the birds worrying today that they're going to get any food to eat, that there's a, not enough worms in the ground? No, I take care of the birds of the air. Look at how beautiful the lilies of the field are clothed. So stop worrying. Do it. Try harder. Do you see how that doesn't work? See how many times you in your own life, if you want to think through, have just heard a sermon and said, yeah, I'm going to try harder. So here's my illustration of that. I think that's essentially you and I, if we were to use a similar area of our life where we want to grow in something. So let's take, for example, fitness. And this is just me pulling for something easy because I've done a lot of sports and coaching and athletic training. And so let's imagine that all of us in this room heard a message from me, and this was the, the basic message. Let's all run a marathon. That's our goal. By this time next year, we're all together, Embassy Church, we're going to run the Chicago Marathon. Tomorrow, 
how many of us would be wise to start running 26 miles tomorrow? How many of you, here if you'd like to show hands, would die if you ran 26 miles tomorrow? Yes, I would collapse at mile two or three. Do you get my point? There's a big difference between practicing and training versus just trying harder. This is not a try harder sermon. Jesus is not a try harder preacher. He's teaching you the grand big perspective of what it looks like to live in his kingdom. How to be a human, if you want to put it very simply. What's the proper way to live as a human on the earth? Jesus is teaching his great manifesto for how humans should live, how people should live within the kingdom of God here on the earth. And his concluding message is not go to the workout bench and say, hey, how many of you want to have a goal that I want to bench press my weight? And you go and you put on the bar 45, 50 pound weights. You're like, all right, here we go. And then go, and you kill yourself, right? Like that's what you would happen. For several of you that have not been lifting weights, like you would die. The, the, The bench press bar would fall on your chest. And you like literally could die. This happens. But no, you start first with where you're at. And some of us, it's just the bar. And that's 45 pounds. And that's all we got. And we get a couple out. And then the next day. And then we add those 2.5 pound weights, those ones that look make really look strong, like this big, you know? And you put those on, you got this big bar and these small little donut rings. And you're like, hey, progress. And then you add some 10 pound weights and some 25 pound weights. We know this, but why don't we apply it this way when we think about Jesus' teaching? Why is it for so many of us when we hear teachings like this that Jesus' emphasis, we like, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go do it. It's a small, daily training and practice in community together, and that's what that discipleship diamond is all about. Are you going to do something with the Sermon on the Mount? We're finishing it today. I want you to review all that we've heard. I want you to read over it again if you've not read it. And I want you to do that again next week. I want you to do that again the week after that. And I want you to not get over the Sermon on the Mount. This is like the best of the best of the best in terms of Jesus' teaching. I'd encourage you to memorize it, but not to memorize it so you're here only. So that way it just gets a part of who you are, the DNA of how you think through your life. Do you all remember that great bracelet, What Would Jesus Do? Wonderful piece of jewelry. I used to wear one, I will admit it. But I really think a better question isn't just what did Jesus do, although that's probably a better question as well. But on this point of doing, what would Jesus do if he were in your shoes, in your stage of life, in your season of life? Not just some big, obscure, abstract question. But when you start thinking now, if he were in my shoes as a mom caring for young children, as a single person, as a college student, somebody whose kids are grown and I'm in a different season of life, etc. It goes around the room. Look around the room. We're not all in the same place. And that's why it takes community and people around us. And that's why it takes practice over and over again. So everyone who hears these words of mine and does them and practices them in community, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. It's not singular, it's plural. It's supposed to be you in community. As you live in community with one another, that's who I'm talking to. A group of people that will do this together will practice day in and day out. That's why I said at the beginning of this service that this is not an event to attend. Church is not a Sunday morning check off the box. This is why discipleship is at the core and heart of who we are as a church because we want to teach you to not just learn a little bit about Jesus, get some more information, have your heart moved a little bit, and then do nothing about it. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, poieo, notice the contrast again is not between people who will hear Jesus' words and those who don't hear Jesus' words. All through his conclusion, the narrow and the wide gate the narrow and the broad road, the two different trees, the two different kinds of people that bear good fruit or bad fruit. On the surface, they look the same. They're both religious people. They're both hearing Jesus' teaching. They both know the Torah. They're both praying. They're both fasting. 
The question is, what's their foundation? So the contrast here, again, is not between the religious people who listen to Jesus' teaching and go to church. Oh, and then all those people that couldn't make it to church today because they're so godless. It's not the contrast. Between you in this room, some of you will hear this teaching and you will do something with it. You will hear the Sermon on the Mount and you will want to slowly, every day, make one more step one more step closer to living more like Jesus in community. Some of you will listen and you will act like you're a Christian. You maybe even fool me or other people. But at the end of your life, the rains come and the winds beat on the house and you'll have nothing because you've built your entire life on a sham, on a lie. These are haunting words. They have been the entire conclusion. Jesus is not like, all right, here's some fun tips for living, and all right, guys, have a great week. Do you know what, like, the way the kids talk today, like the mic drop? If there was ever a mic drop, it is in the Sermon on the Mount. What is the rains, the floods, and the wind that Jesus is talking about? There's two possible translations. One is it's the trials of your life. Ever since Augustine, so this would have been about three, four, five hundred years into the history of the church, you've got a tradition of teaching where people started talking about the trials of this life or what Jesus is referring to here when he says that the, the rains will fall down. Rainy days being, man, it's just tough. It just, when it rains, it pours one thing after another. I think more likely, though, even though that's possible and there is precedent, throughout church history for you to interpret it that way, that, hey, sometimes your true character is shown when life is hard, right? So this is true, not only probably in everyday observations, but it's been true that people have interpreted Jesus' words this way, but more likely, I think this is prophetic judgment. I think this is why when Matt came up here and he read Ezekiel chapter 13, It talked about the rains, the deluge, the great storms that are going to come down. And it's for people who are saying peace when there is no peace for false prophets. That fits the context of the Sermon on the Mount, I think, better. Especially if you look back at Matthew chapter 7. Notice what Jesus says right before this illustration. On verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. What's that day he's referring to? It's the great day of the Lord. It's shorthand for a Jewish concept of the great day when God would come and he would make all wrongs right. He would vindicate his people. He would save all of his people from the evil and iniquity and sins and struggles and pain and suffering of this world. And he would establish the new heavens and the new earth. They lived in two two perspectives, that there's this day and then there's that day. There's this current present age, and they called it the evil age, and then there's the age to come. Every time you read Jesus or any scripture writer refer to the age to come, they're talking about the day when Jesus establishes his kingdom. And what's interesting, though, is that we now live in between those two days. They're overlapping. Think of two circles that overlap in a Venn diagram. We live in that middle section. The kingdom has already been established, but it's not fully come. And so when Jesus announces the good news of the kingdom, he's saying the day of the Lord is here. But then on that day, when it's finally here, when he returns, everything will be laid to bear. All secrets will be exposed, etc. So I think that's what he's referring to in terms of prophetic judgment and why we should hear this warning between the two houses. I don't know how many of you grew up in church. I know a lot of you have. I know that there was flannel graph. I know that there was silly songs about the rains come down and the floods rise and we teach Sunday school lessons like that. But the soberness of this warning should not escape us. The familiarity of this passage should not lead us again to inaction Lastly, last question on this point of poieo, what are you doing, is there's another 
debate or discussion on what's the house? And there's two ways I think you can take it. One is that the house is your life. What is your life built upon? And again, that fits. It fits with Jewish context. It fits with the whole illustration and the whole sermon. I think there's also another possible reason to interpret this as not just any house, but the house of the Jewish people called the temple. I think that Jesus is coming in as a prophet, speaking against the Jewish people of his day and saying, I am establishing a new way for you to be the people of God. And if you want to establish your house, your dwelling place where God and man meet together on anything other than me, then at the end, you're going to see that plan is going to fail and it will not succeed. As one author says, building your house on the rock is doing Jesus' own words, not just merely listening to them. But we often miss what his first hearers probably would have heard instinctively behind this dramatic picture language. You see, not too far away from where Jesus was on this hillside, a hundred miles or so in Jerusalem, Herod's men were building and rebuilding a temple. They spoke of it as God's house, and they would declare that it would be built upon a rock, proof against any of the wind and weather. This was a ginormous construction project. It very much would have consumed the people of Jesus' day, especially Jews. And so this author continues. In the last great sermon in Matthew's gospel, so this is later on in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is going to warn that the temple itself will come crashing down because Israel has failed to respond to his message. Or if you remember, halfway through the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16, in another dramatic moment, he promises to Peter, after he confesses faith in Jesus as Messiah and Lord, Jesus tells Peter that on the rock of his confession, something very different would be built, a community of people that believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And so therefore, the church is built on the rock of the confession that Jesus is the Christ. And therefore, we should individually, yes, build our houses, our individual lives on the rock of Jesus, but our whole church should be built on Christ, the rock. And I think that this helps us think through why it's so important to listen to Jesus' words. Do you know what happened shortly after his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven? Forty years later, the people of Israel who heard the words of Jesus did not do them, did not put them into practice. And many of them were hearing false prophets going around and telling the Jews, no, 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 don't listen to Jesus. We have a different way to be Israel. Fight, take up arms, carry the sword, go against the Roman government and soldiers. Rome came like a flood crashing the house that all of these people who did not hear Jesus' words, that house that they built on sand was destroyed, and the temple was utterly decimated. And ever since then, since 70 AD, there has never been a temple rebuilt on that land. For me, when you think about Jesus' prophetic words in their historical context, how does that not up the ante and then make sense to our second word in the conclusion of the chapter. You first learned the word poieo. The last and final thing I want you to learn is explaso. In the conclusion, Jesus says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were explaso at his teaching. They were astonished. There's two words, two compound words put together, ek, to draw out from within, And placeo, which is to strike or pound like a hammer flattening something. So you put them together, and you'd have very literally like strike out one's senses. To pull out, but very violently or very aggressively pull something out. So this is why it's sometimes translated, they were struck with panic. They were struck with shock or amazement or thunderstruck, some translations have. Astounded, dumbfounded, at a loss, causing someone to gape and stand with their jaw dropped open. 
The interesting thing about this word, explaso, is that every time Matthew uses this word to talk about Jesus, it's always in reference to something he just said or taught, not a miracle he just performed. Matthew 13 is one example. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to this hometown, they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom from? Or in Matthew 19, as Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with great difficulty will rich people enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of an eagle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly explaso at this saying. And they said, Who can be saved? And Jesus said, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Why were they so astonished? That's something Jesus said. He already healed a bunch of people right before giving this teaching. But the astonishment, the jaw-dropping explaso was because of something he said. Look down at the text again. Chapter 7, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For, or because, He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That's why their jaws were dropped. All through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been taking a very different approach to teach his Jewish audience. The custom of the day would be, let me quote a rabbi, read a little bit of the Torah, quote what the tradition has been said, weigh in on it, say, well, rabbi so-and-so said this, well, Hillel said this, well, Gamaliel says this, and that's how you would teach if you were a rabbi. Is that how Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it said in the Torah. How many rabbis did he quote? Just himself. But I say to you, he establishes his authority from the very first point of his message. All through chapter 5, you hear six repetitions of, you have heard it said, but I, the one and only rabbi that you should listen to, I say to you. Jesus tells us in his conclusion that there's a narrow road that leads to life. And there's a broad way that the Pharisees and the scribes are giving, and it leads to destruction. Choose the narrow path. I am the narrow gate and the way and the truth and the life. Notice again the way Jesus concludes. He says, not everyone will say to me on that day. What what day was that again? The day of the Lord. The day of God making everything right over the whole earth. On that day, people will come to who? Well, he doesn't say Father. He doesn't say Yahweh. He says, not everyone who comes to me on that day and says, Lord, Lord, kurios, kurios. If you take the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the word for Yahweh, God's personal name. Not everyone who comes to me and says, God, God, my God, my God. Every time you read in the scriptures the repetition of a name, it is in the most heartfelt of moments. David loses his son and he says, Absalom, Absalom. Mary and Martha, twice Jesus will say, once to Mary, Mary, Mary. And in another moment, Martha, Martha. Or most of all, think of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And people are coming, and they're speaking to Jesus in that way. And he is telling them, I am the judge. I am the kurios. I am the Lord, Lord. And on that day, I will declare that I never knew you. Friend, do you know who Jesus is? Because if you knew the way he was talking, it would illustrate who he is. And if you knew who he was, you would be a fool. To hear his words and live any other way than what he lays out for us in the Sermon on the Mount. This, my friends, is good news. That the God of the heavens and the earth has come down. The the Yahweh God of the Old Testament. The one who made the heavens and the earth. The one who promised he would never judge with a great big flood and have the rains fall down and the waters rise up and wash out the whole earth. That God, Yahweh, He came down in the form of a human. His name is Jesus. And that Jesus has taught us 
through his life, by the way he modeled it, through his words, the way he taught it, and then ultimately through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to pour out for us his spirit to empower you to train every day for the rest of your life to follow him. What are you going to do with it? Poyeo? Or be a hearer only? Let's pray that you become a follower. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for Jesus and this sermon on the mount. We want to thank you for his life and his death. We want to thank you, God, that Jesus provides for us all that we need in order to obey these commands. We thank you for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit without which any of this would be possible. Father, I thank you for the picture that you provide for us throughout the story of Scripture. And we pray that we would apply this truth to our lives. We would know who we are in Christ. We would know the power of your Spirit. We would not just try harder the rest of this day or tomorrow. But we would have Spirit-empowered, grace-enabled, gospel-centered doing that bears good fruit. May we have Jesus rooted in our hearts, God. Would you help each one of us examine ourselves and know whether or not on that day that we would hear these words, depart from me, I never knew you? Or well done, my good and faithful servant. Father, I pray for our community as embassy to help make and establish and equip and export gospel work to the nations. That your world would be filled with people that are saturated with your word and not just hearing it but doing it. So beyond whatever we could ask or imagine, bless this teaching, this sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. And may these words not fall on deaf ears, God. We're praying. We're Seeking you now, asking, we're knocking with confidence that you will open and that we will find. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and you would consider yourself a Christian who is a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus,